This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRFM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Greg Mullins. Greg is a long-serving volunteer firefighter and former New South Wales Fire and Rescue Commissioner. He joined me to discuss his new book, Firestorm, Battling Supercharged Natural Disasters. Greg discusses the dire effects of human-caused climate change on the bushfire season here in Australia and globally. He also shares his concerns over the policy and federal leadership vacuum on these issues. And I'm absolutely delighted to welcome onto the program Greg Mullins, who is a former New South Wales Fire and Rescue Chief. And he's also still and currently is a volunteer firefighter for the New South Wales RFS. And he's written a new book called Firestorm, Battling Supercharged Natural Disasters. And I do highly recommend that you actually look at Greg Mullins's full bio because it is very extensive and it certainly gives you a huge understanding of his great depth of experience, which we will certainly draw out in this interview but I did want to highlight a couple of moments in his wonderful and very distinguished career, and that is that he formed in 2019 the Emergency Leaders for Climate Action, which was and is a coalition of 34 former fire and emergency services chiefs throughout Australia, so it's from across all states in Australia. They sought to warn the federal government of the impending bushfire disaster in 2019, which so many of us will vividly remember, as I'm sure Greg does, given that he fought fires in that a particular bushfire in New South Wales, and obviously uh, it affected several states in terms of bushfires. So I do um, want to welcome Greg now. Hi there, Greg Mullins, and thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Amy. Pleasure. Pleasure to be with you. It is really great to finally get a chance to speak with you, and I really did admire you greatly in 2019 when you and your colleagues formed that group, Emergency Leaders for Climate Action, and really sought to, I guess, debunk or step into a debate area that is absolutely fraught, as you've pointed out, with politicking and uh, it's obviously highly ideological and it's certainly brought down a number of prime ministers over the years and that is climate change and climate policy in Australia. And at this press conference that you gave in mid-November 2019, you and your colleagues all got together and a number of you spoke and gave really wonderful insights, but you also did respond to questions from the media and they were asking about your reaching out to the Prime Minister and reaching out to the government to try and preempt the bushfires that were to come. Obviously, that season had already been an early season, which you outline in the book, but I just wanted to play a short clip from that press conference, which will certainly jog people's memories, I think, and also provide an important context and backdrop to our conversation about your new book, Firestorm. So I'm just going to play this clip. The voice you'll be hearing is Greg Mullins at this uh, press conference in November 2019 at a really critical juncture in this uh, public debate and discussion about climate change and its role and relation to bushfires in Australia. If it's not time now to speak about climate change and what's driving these events when this fire season is going to go for months so do we just simply get gagged because i think that's what's happening some people want the debate gagged because they don't have any answers and it's okay to say it's arsonists fault or pretend that the greenies are stopping uh, hazard reduction burning which simply isn't true but you're not allowed to talk about climate change well we are because we know what's happening Why do you think it's been so hard to get the government to talk about this? This government fundamentally doesn't like talking about climate change and that's all I'll say about that. We actually would like to go back to being retired and not have to speak out. We'd like the doors to be open to the current chiefs and allow them to utter the words climate change. They're not allowed to at the moment. We want a national summit where people are brought together. You need the insurance industry, you need farmers, You need the defence forces, you need fire services, of course, other interested groups. And we want a bipartisan approach. None of us can understand why climate change in Australia is so political. Um, In the UK, the Conservatives 
said years ago, Margaret Thatcher said this is a major problem. But in Australia, it's a major demarcation. We'd like to see Labor, the Coalition Government, the Greens, the crossbenchers all come together, declare a climate emergency and start to do something about the base cause, the burning of oil, coal and gas, the generation of CO2, methane and nitrous oxide, which is warming the planet and making our bushfires unfightable. Greg, are you saying that, if you're saying that the warnings were there for this current season, um, how early were the warnings there and when did you first try and warn the government? Look, I'm sure that the government was receiving warnings through their own agencies, um, but our concern as a group of former chiefs was we knew that it was very difficult for the current chiefs to get through the door to the highest levels of federal government. They could at state and territory level. For example, there's been a business case languishing in Canberra for the last two years calling on the federal government to increase funding for strategic aerial firefighting resources. In other words, those large firefighting aircraft. No answer. If there'd been an answer, there would be more of those aircraft in the sky as we speak. Um, so there was a 50-50 sharing arrangement from 2003. It's now nine to one. States and territories paying nine times what the federal government pays because the federal government hasn't updated their share since 2003. That has to be addressed. But fundamentally for the future, while addressing emergency service needs and making our, safe, our community safer, there must be real action on climate change rather than emissions going up every year for the last five years. And so you just heard there a clip from Greg Mullins at his press conference with his colleagues from the Emergency Leaders for Climate Action Group, which is a coalition of 34 former fire and emergency services chiefs. Uh, Greg having been based in New South Wales, but certainly, as you'll soon find out from our conversation, has provided support in many different ways to other states who've battled serious bushfires, including our own here in Victoria. So um, I welcome back uh, Greg Mullins. And um, first of all, Greg, we will get to that press conference in a moment, but I, I did want to set the scene for this chat, which is going to be about climate change and bushfires. But you actually start this book with a story that I really, really enjoyed, not in a happy way, but in a, I guess I was moved and also affected when I read it, which was your experience growing up with your dad, who really sounds like an awesome guy. I wish I would have got to meet someone like your dad, who sounds wonderful and says the word bloody quite a lot. And, you know, as you said, doesn't think it's a swear word, which I agree. It's not really a swear word, is it? <laughs> great, great Australian adjective, he called it. I agree with that. So feel free to add some bloodies if you need. Um, <laughs> but your dad, Jack, you know, it sounds like he was a, a great influence on you growing up. And I wondered if you could take us through that moment when you first got ready to battle a bushfire with your dad. Yeah, well, look, both mum and dad, um, you know, everyone, I think, adores their parents. But in the parent lottery, I, I, I won first prize. So they were... They were just incredible. Um, Mum's name was Pat. She was a school teacher and environmentalist, and we were just involved in so many different things. They were volunteer. They volunteered in every way possible. But you know, growing up, we knew about as little kids in the 1960s Indigenous land rights. How you know we'd stolen the land off the original owners and everything, and other kids just didn't seem to know that we knew where all the local carvings were, the caves with hand stencils, and mum knew a lot of the background. Dad was a real bushman. He understood the bush. Um, he'd fought in World War II in the Air Force, been very poor during the Great Depression. His dad fought in Gallipoli and the Western Front in World War One, and came back, back pretty damaged. So, um, But, look, Valley is a public service. Dad ended up, um, he was a builder, and ended up as running half of New South Wales for the New South Wales Department of Public Works. He built a lot of high schools and TAFE colleges. But it was all about others. And I grew up in the bush in northern suburbs of Sydney, surrounded by National Park. And in summer, you'd just see smoke in the bush. And Dad would go, no, we don't need to worry about that one. That's doing a good job. That one's doing a good job. Ooh, that one's in the wrong spot and it's been pretty dry there. We might go and have a look at that in a day or two. was a lot more laid back in those days, but he, he knew his fires. And um, I 
I remember this first fire vividly, of course, and I've written about it in my book. That's how the book opens, my first big fire. It was October 1971. Um, all of the local fire trucks were, were around the other side of this fire, which had started the day before, and, and then it came into our our suburb. And my big brother's best friend was home alone with his teenage sister and rung up and Dad said, okay, jump in the car, mate, off we go. And so I tell the story of that first big fire and just I soaked it in as a kid because I I was so fascinated with how fires worked, how, what the weather did, how fires go quicker up a steep slope, fuel levels, um, spot fires, and it all came together. And it was pretty terrifying, but it was fascinating too. And so the next year when I was 13, um, I found a local bushfire brigade who, as my brother Terry said, are desperate and will take anyone, even you. <laughs> so I became a, a volunteer. Dad was in the local brigade, Terry Hills, but I had to be 16 to join there. So I uh, had to wait a few years before I was directly fighting fires with Dad. I mean, 13 does seem like a pretty early age to sign up as a volunteer firefighter in the scheme of things, I mean, it, was that a common thing at the time to see people your age doing this or was that something that you were a bit of an outlier? Oh, look, there are a few of us and it, in this particular brigade and it's actually the same brigade, Duffy's Forest, where um, the former commissioner of, of New South Wales Rural Fire Service, Shane Fitzsimmons, he, I think he was might have been 15 or 16 when he joined years after I'd left, but but I knew Shane. Um, we, we were both locals, and I knew Shane's dad. I fought fires with his dad. So look, it was there weren't a lot of people. So if, the, the old saying was, if you're big enough and ugly enough <laughs> to swing a McLeod tool or carry a knapsack, then we want you on the back of the truck. And as I said, I loved being out in the bush. That that's my happy place in the bush, and I, I was learning all the time about how the different elements come together. You know, every year there were bushfires, but most years they weren't too bad. It was only about once a decade that you got the confluence of um, climate systems like El Nino, um, which we didn't understand back in those days in the 60s and 70s, but hot weather, dry winds, et cetera, and then you had problems. But it was um, it was very predictable. Yeah, and it does remind me later on in the book, you point out the fact that even in, in those times in the 60s and 70s, uh, even the Weather Bureau had difficulties predicting the actual weather. It wasn't as sophisticated then as it is nowadays, obviously due to technology and all these other you know scientific advancements and understandings about the climate that we now have, thankfully, that we can bring to bear on these strategies that we would take to manage a fire. So it's one thing I loved about what you were describing about your dad was this idea of bushfires and understanding their behaviour and understanding when a bushfire season might be bad was a bit of art and a bit of science, but it often was a lot of art in those early days. Oh, look, absolutely. And I, I used to sit around, there, there were a couple of old timers um, who would hold court before the bushfire season because everybody listened to Len Rhodes and Bob Kurzweil because they'd lived there for years and years and years and just knew the bush and uh, they'd pick it. And Dad became another one of those people who he, he'd, he'd tell you, he'd say, look, that wattle tree, that's flowering. Um that's a month early. It's going to be a hot summer. And, you know, look at the casuarina trees. They're going brown already. That means that they've got very shallow roots. Um, there's not a lot of moisture in the near the surface. So things are drying out. Mightn't be in drought but we yet, but we could be. So, so he'd see all the indicators and short-term indicators. He'd watch ants swarming and say, ha-ha, it's going to rain. And there was the rain bird. I remember people locally are talking about these birds, coels. They've got this mournful tone. And there's not many around these days. Oh, sorry, there weren't many around in those days. But if it started to make its call at dusk, Dad would say it's going to rain within the week. And it was spot on. So they called that the rain bird. But so it was, so they just knew the bush. And frankly, the Weather Bureau forecasts back in the 60s and 70s had trouble knowing what would happen the next day. They certainly didn't have satellite data and computers to crunch the numbers. And so and I, I remember vividly 
I'm sorry about this. I'm a bit of a nerd with dates, but it was 16th of December 1977. Uh, the Blue Mountains caught fire, and I'd been off shopping, came home, and my sister said the bushfire brigade just rang. And uh, anyway, cut a long story short, a, few, a couple of hours later, I was battling blazing houses on a ridge top in the Blue Mountains, but they never saw the weather system coming. Uh, today, um, they'd have Doppler radar, all sorts of things, satellite images that wouldn't get past them. But back in those days, it was hit and miss. So you really listened to the old timers and that was the art and they were pretty spot on. Yeah. Well, I love that you point out dates because what is very striking in this book is that you have a great memory or that's what it uh, appears as such because these descriptions of your experiences over the years from your very early ages, you know, at 12 and 13 years, battling different bushfires and your observations on the ground in these areas are so vivid. And when you're reading it, you feel like you're there. And certainly, I guess I was really struck with just how well you do know these areas. And clearly that must come from a sense of connection to it, is knowing it, I guess, like the back of your hand. So I wondered when you were writing this book as well, and you were dipping into these much older memories from the 70s, how you managed to tap into those experiences and to write them so clearly and um, with such immediacy. Yeah, look, (laughs) it's an interesting thing. But when I look back at my career as a career firefighter, so 39 years with Fire and Rescue and and was very much involved in the bushfire side of things there, was commissioner for nearly 14 years. And um, you remember the seminal things that happen um, over the years and particularly where you're in danger. Um, you remember it vividly. And so, you know, I, I recount the story again in 1977, which was a bad year in New South Wales. I, during my high school certificate exam, I nearly lost my life at a fire um, near Narrabeen Lake and got separated from the crew and got overrun and had to lie down in the middle of a fire trail. But, um, and you, you don't forget things like that. You, you remember it vividly. Um, and it's... Uh, Sometimes you wish you could forget, frankly. But um, I, I was I kept the fascination that Dad gave me of what's happening with weather patterns, and that's where it started to dawn on me, particularly in the nineties, that something was subtly changing. And it was subtle at first, and then it just became quicker and quicker. And the the number of changes, the type of weather that we're experiencing, the frequency of the bad weather the length of the fire seasons, the number of days of very high fire danger and above, it all just it was all just became like an avalanche. It just got worse and worse and worse. But I was able to watch that unfold because of that deep interest that mum and dad had given me in the environment and how everything works together and it all went skew if. Yeah, I can't wait to get to that. We're going to um, talk about some of those fires in the 90s because that is clearly a really pivotal moment for you in your understanding of the fires and the way that it evolves and and how climate change is playing into it. But I did want to ask you one other thing before we jump to that, which was in that those early moments where, and clearly even later on, you still have fought fires beside your dad. You know, he's passed away now, but you, I know over many years have fought side by side or if not side by side, you know, down the road at different houses and in different areas battling the same fires. Um, And you did make this observation about this kind of effect called the command presence effect that military scholars refer to about this kind of calm demeanour that a number of really great leaders would have in a crisis and that you said, in all my years, I never saw Dad get flustered at a fire. And I really love this quote that you said. Uh, You said, I remember asking him once at a particularly challenging fire how he could stay so calm. He looked at me, shrugged and said, well, I didn't like the bloody thing. No point getting worried. All we can do is try our best and hope that's enough. I mean, <laughs> just such a great philosophy to have. So I wanted to ask about that, you know, what your dad had. Clearly he had that in spades. You know, how does a leader 
cultivate that command presence and or is that something you're just naturally born with? Uh, look, I think it can be taught, but some people do it more easily than others. And, and you know, frankly, when I was young, I'd, <laughs> I'd start to panic a bit and I just remember the hand on the shoulder, down it goes, it's all okay, mate, calm down, it's all okay. We're, we're just going to bunker down, it's going to go over the top of us, we'll be right. Just And if you go, oh, okay, he knows what's going on. I remember once. I didn't put that in the book, but I said, but how did you know? And he said, I didn't. I thought we were screwed. <laughs> and I said, oh, thanks. But he said, yeah, you can't. Um, he said, if the person in charge starts to panic, it all falls apart and it it will turn to custard. You know, it's, so he said, it's the job of the leader to stay calm because if you start to panic, you can't process information and, um, and everyone takes their lead from you. So, and I, I just... Aha, uh-huh, right. And one of the things I've learned over the years, you know, going to factory fires, all sorts of incidents that are really unfolding really quickly, including, you know, massive bushfires and, and I've fought fires overseas as well um, in California, places like that, is, um, yeah, sometimes you just got to fake it. <laughs> but you, you must stay calm it's, um, it, it's there's there's really no option um, because as, yeah, as I said before if you, if you panic that's it that's all over and people can lose their lives so um, and when I I started studying at uni I don't know my late 30s I did a master's of management and I was fascinated in the leadership subject and all the um, theory behind it, but I, I, there wasn't a lot of literature on emergency services, and the closest I could get was military, and that's where these concepts came out about command presence and yeah, it's uh, <laughs> keeping a level head, and you just must. Yeah, yeah, just don't let on. One thing I would love to talk about before uh, we get into the current day, is to talk about the 90s because you do say that uh, up until the mid-1990s, fire seasons along the east coast of New South Wales had always been fairly predictable. And you really outline the good old predictable days, which is a chapter title from your book. You know, what were the features of these good old predictable days? What was so predictable about it? And um, obviously, how did that guide bushfire management pre-mid-1990s? Yes. Well, well, look, focusing on Sydney and the Blue Mountains, which was where, you know, I was based in Sydney. I fought fires throughout the state. But the bad bushfire seasons happened about a decade apart. So uh, you look at the Blue Mountains, there were fires in 1944, 1957, 68, 77, uh, 94. Um, So they were pretty much 10, 13 years apart. Same in Sydney. When Blue Mountains had a bad season, Sydney would have a bad season. That meant that the weather patterns were producing hot, dry, windy weather with total fire bans, what we called extreme fire danger in those days, which is now three subdivisions or two, severe and extreme, and then you have the new one off the scale, catastrophic. We very rarely got, or never really got catastrophic in this part of the world um, back in those days. From the mid-90s, you'd have um, fairly bad seasons. I recount one of the fires in um, 1990, in December 1990, and we'd, you know, just a day here, day there. But 1994 really hit with a vengeance. January 1994, the whole state was on fire. It just happened suddenly with no real build-up. And I describe in the book why we'd let our guard down. We'd had rain in November. That normally meant yep, the fire season will go from north to south, south coast, Victoria, Tasmania, South Australia, then we're off the hook. But we might be called to help them down south. And it just didn't happen that way. And it just got very dry very quickly and then hot, windy weather set in for days on end and that was unusual. So we thought after that, okay, they're the worst fires New South Wales has ever had in terms of property loss and we'll lick our wounds, it'll be another decade. But no, 1997, Sydney was on fire again. So we thought, okay, we've got a while to prepare. Then 2001, Christmas 2001, we're back in the fires. 2002, 2003, Canberra 
you know, nearly 500 homes and a, the first recorded fire tornado, uh, 200 kilometre per hour winds, fires moving at 20 kilometres per hour, never before recorded worldwide rates of speed like that. So things, as I said before, it just, it didn't change slowly. It just all of a sudden, it was different and the weather patterns were different. This was all driven by changed weather patterns and weather patterns over a long period of time, that's climate. So the climate was changing around us and changing all the rules. And we've heard this being discussed as well, but I remember hearing about the idea that the bushfire season is getting longer and therefore there's overlap in terms of which states are affected and at what point. And you certainly highlight that in the book, which is to say that the fire weather would start each year in Queensland, sometimes as early as mid-August, and then shift progressively south down towards Victoria and Tasmania as summer approached, meaning that there was usually plenty of warning that things might get interesting. So obviously it followed that kind of pattern, but clearly the fire seasons have been extending. And I wondered in your opinion and your assessment, when did you notice that the fire seasons had started to happen earlier and that we were seeing these fire activity that then gradually built up to, I guess, that fever pitch towards the end of the year in the summer? Look, it was probably um, towards the end of the first decade of the 2000s. Just subtle, you'd, you'd get very hot days happening in September and nothing too bad, but it was enough to be quite unusual and August was much warmer. So I... I tell the story in the book how we used to go camping a lot. We'd go Queen's birthday weekend in June. We'd go away at Easter and we'd always get drowned, you know, and everyone would say, if the Mullins are going camping, it's going to rain. And <laughs> so um, it was a good indicator of us taking off with all our tents and everything. But it suddenly, over the years, it stopped raining. We were going away camping. And what this was was a long-term trend of a reduction in winter rainfall. And in southeast Australia, it's at least a 12% reduction. And over in Western Australia, 20% reduction. Southwestern, you know, Margaret River area. Um, and so it's dried out the forests and it's 1.4 degrees warming since 1910 on average. But what that means is day and night, it's slightly warmer. So there's more evaporation. So the bush is getting drier. And... Then the dial just started to shift, and particularly the big wake-up call was 2013 when the Blue Mountains went up again, um, yet again. It had gone in 2006, and just, uh, what's that, seven years later, another another major fire. So it, we, we had hot, dry weather in August. We were getting big fires in August, and then in September, and we had days of... 35 degrees, 30, 35 degrees in September. They've just dried everything out incredibly. And then in early October, we had the worst property losses ever recorded in New South Wales um, with 225 homes lost. And we'd never had major property loss in New South Wales prior to the second half of November. And we'd never had major property loss in New South Wales without the amplifying effect of an El Nino event, which makes it few degrees warmer and a lot drier. So that was the big wake up. That was, wow, this is really different. And at the same time, Tasmania was burning. Hundreds of homes lost there. They had their first ever recorded catastrophic fire danger. Now, that was a new danger rating that came in after Black Saturday 2009. It's off the scale over of one to a hundred of fire danger ratings. But even going back, looking at whether they had in 1967 when nearly 2,000 homes were lost, 62 people, 62 or 67 people, 62, I think, lost their lives in Hobart. Um, it was way off the scale of anything they'd had in Tasmania. And the story up in Queensland was their natural hazard that they were worried about was cyclones, not bushfires. Bushfires were just an incidental hazard they had occasionally in southeast Queensland, they weren't too bad, but they were spreading into the subtropics, um, which was getting drier and the seasons were getting longer. So big shifts. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Well, it's shocking because you do say that even rainforests, these kind of temperate and humid type of environments were burning in Tasmania and in Queensland, places that would not normally burn alpine regions in Tasmania. So, you know, that would certainly ring alarm bells for any person familiar with the environment there. And you do, you know, highlight just how much things have escalated in Tasmania as well, which I've got to say when I read it was quite staggering they are essentially our neighbours here in Victoria. And you do point out in the book that Victoria was the state in Australia most affected by bushfires um, and that we've here been on the front line of increasing bushfire risk and that you say it's been compared to California and France in terms of the volatility of the environment and regularity of major fires. And obviously the Black Saturday bushfires really do mark a kind of pivotal moment in Victorian bushfire history as well. And I know pretty much anyone I speak to will know what where they were and what they were doing and what was happening on Black Saturday. And obviously some people were really at the front line of the bushfires. And then those in Melbourne remember it quite vividly with the extreme winds, the extreme heat. You know, it was certainly memorable for all the wrong reasons for pretty much everyone in the state. But you also say that your family were here in Melbourne when the Black Saturday bushfires were occurring, obviously um, further afield, but that, you know, they noticed just how significant and, and severe the weather changes were in terms of the wind and that extreme high 48, 47, 48 degree weather. Yes, and, I, and my, my wife and daughter had a trip to Melbourne, shopping trip, <laughs> so they had a, a weekend away. And that Saturday, they, I was travelling to Corowa on the New South Wales-Victorian border for a, a celebration of 100 years of the local fire brigade down there. And so I was driving through dust storms and oh, 49 degree heat trying to get to Corowa. But Eris and Kate went to Queen Victoria Markets in the morning and they, they just said the gale force winds, they had to close it. Things were flying everywhere. It was just too dangerous. And they said the, the heat radiating up from the pavement, their eyes started to sting because the moisture in their eyes dried out. So they they found a cinema. They can't remember what movie it was. They didn't really care. They just wanted to get into air conditioning. But that was a that was a frustrating. Uh, I don't think frustrating is a word. It's um, I don't know what the word is. But when there's something major going on and you're you you know the business, um, I just felt for my colleagues down in Victoria. But there wasn't a lot we could do. But Shane Fitzsimmons and I. So I was commissioner of fire and rescue. He was. Commissioner of Rural Fire Service, we were talking constantly. We started to move fire trucks towards the border and then Russell, the Chief Officer of the CFA, Neil um, Bibby, the CEO, we spoke to them. They said, yes, we need help. We, we haven't got a full picture, but please, you know, send those trucks and people. And But it just, you know, King Lake, the fire at King Lake, 159 people lost their lives. This was just... You know, that word again, unprecedented, but it was a pyroconvective storm, a fire-generated storm, and incredible heat output. Um, satellite images later, 88,000 kilowatts per metre of fire front. So imagine 44,000 two-kilowatt bar heaters crammed into one metre. Imagine trying to um, stand near that. So it, it, there, there were fires you couldn't fight, and... You know, and what I say in the book, and sorry, I know your audience are from Victoria, but imagine, so we had 11 times more property loss in New South Wales than ever, ever before. The fires covering, you know, totally unprecedented land area, 23% of eastern broadleaf forest, that includes Gippsland, but um, 5.4 million hectares just in New South Wales, over 7 million hectares in Queensland, millions of hectares in Victoria, South Australia. Imagine that sort of increase in intensity in Victoria, where historically the big days are single days where you've got the hot northerly wind and then you get the southwesterly change come through and it just swamps. But imagine day after day, week after week, month after month of fire seasons like that. And the Inspector General of Emergency Management in Victoria, his reports into the effects of climate change a uh, pretty sobering reading saying we're, we're heading into territory that we don't understand. And the people who say, ah, oh, 
you know, that's a bit far-fetched. Well, just look at California. You know, I've spent a lot of time in California, including in 2019 um, at the Kincaid Fire in Sonoma County, and their fire seasons are at least 75 days longer each year um, in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Um, there's less snowpack. The whole water cycle has changed. They're almost in constant drought, and the fuel loads are unmanageable because forests are dying off. So, you know, this all comes back to climate change. So we've, you know, had a couple of centuries of great prosperity and everything. And, you know, I think it's actually silly blaming people in the past saying you should have known. Well, no, they couldn't have. You know, people did flag this, but it's our generation that has to put in the fix. And I, I get so frustrated hearing that the nationals... They, they obviously just don't understand how bad this is. They say, you know, but what's the cost? Well, ask the people who lost their homes and lost loved ones in the bushfires. They'll tell you what it costs when yeah. you don't do something about this. Well, there are absolutely major costs of inaction, uh, which is something that I kept bringing up and I know others did in the last federal election was that Labor kept being criticised for what is the cost of your climate action plan. But really, no one was saying, well, what is the cost of inaction if we don't have a plan? Because clearly the costs will be much greater. And you do outline the property loss, the financial loss, but obviously the human cost, the natural and ecological costs that we have. There are so many that, you know, it's often really difficult to quantify because, I mean, what? how do you put a price on the types of nature that burns and may not regenerate to the same degree as it did. And one thing, you know, I did note in recent times, you mentioned California, you know, things are getting really serious when firefighters are wrapping sequoia trees with fire blankets, trying to protect them from being burnt in really severe bushfires in California. That was something which made headlines for understandable reasons. But I mean, it does shock you to think that that's where things have gotten. Well, precisely. And it, as I said, you know, I've got a lot of friends in California. I've studied at the US Fire Academy. I've worked in Los Angeles City, Los Angeles County, Oakland, San Francisco. So they're playing catch up. It's the most well-resourced place on the planet in terms of firefighting resources. They have more firefighters, more fire trucks, more aircraft than you can poke a stick at. And they don't know what to do. Um, so it's because of this hotter, drier weather and longer fire seasons, and it's it's just changing. And when I when I was over there in 2019, spoke to a climate scientist. What's his name? Chris. 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 It's in the book. I can't remember his name, but um, and he said, look, this is a natural process because the climates become so much hotter. Um, Mother Nature is using fire to change forests to scrubland, scrubland to grassland, grassland to desert, and it's um, unstoppable. And, you know, if we don't drive down emissions, we're, we're not going to have the forests that we used to have. And if we lose the forests, which are dragging CO2 out of the atmosphere, it will just, that'll be a tipping point. It'll get worse and worse and worse. And so, you know, these costs... Um, I, it, it, yeah, it just beggars belief that you have people who we pay in Canberra. They work for us and they don't do their research. They obviously don't do their research. They can't see past an election horizon. And so they think it's about current jobs when no one's going to buy our coal in the next 20, 30 years. They're all moving away from it. So why is this government not transitioning to new industries to find jobs for all these people? You saw what happened in the Latrobe Valley with sudden closures. We need to look after these people and it's the government's job to draw up plans. They say, you know, you can't do it without a plan. We'll do your job then, nationals and liberals who are in power at the moment. And if you can't, hand it over to someone who can. Yeah. Well, even in the recent days, we've seen Laura Tingle, you know, write about the leadership vacuum and responsibility vacuum in Canberra and how it in her mind, it is actually unprecedented to the extent that really leadership on several issues has been 
just given up and um, it's gone missing. You do say that they're not doing their research, but I also was quite struck by the fact, and I certainly know this from my own experience, that many really well-informed experts such as yourself and your colleagues and climate scientists and academics and, and you know practitioners have all been providing this information and this evidence and even giving plans to politicians, trying to make their job easier to, to make the right decisions for the country. And I know that, you know, people will have these meetings with politicians. It seems like everyone's really on the same page. You get a very positive response and then nothing really happens or you get something totally contrary or opposite happen after the meeting. This seems to be something that you detail in the book uh, in terms of the ways that you reached out, you and your um, emergency leaders for climate action group, you know, reached out and you were getting these kind of mixed signals, if any signals at all. I looked at, I think the perfect example of that is one of the things we said early in the piece um, in April 2019 was uh, the fire agencies need more money for aircraft. And what they'd found after the 2016 Tasmanian fires, the Senate inquiry had said, look, uh, because fire seasons are longer in the US, Canada and Australia, they're now overlapping and Canada and the US won't allow their large firefighting aircraft to leave the country um, or countries to come and help us because we lease all but one of the large firefighting aircraft from the Northern Hemisphere. So the Senate inquiry said we need our own sovereign firefighting capability. Later, the Royal Commission would make the same recommendation and also be ignored. But the fire chiefs in 2018 put together a detailed business case saying, look, Here's the problem, overlapping fire seasons. Um, federal government, you haven't put more money in basically since 2003. So the states and territories, it used to be a dollar for dollar. Now it's about nine to one. Um, please just put in $11 million, which in the scheme of a federal budget is nothing. It's petty cash. They just refused. The Prime Minister refused. Um, so we said, look, they really need this money. We were told no. The Fire Authorities Council, Peak Council, which I used to be the president of for years, the CEO wrote to Minister Littleproud and said, please help us, and got an email back saying, you know, don't frighten the public. It would be really good if you aligned your messages with us saying it's all fine and you don't need anything. We were ignored until I wrote to the Prime Minister again about the fourth time in September 2019 saying, look, what we warned of is unfolding, really need to see you. We were fobbed off to, on the very day that we did that and the media got onto it and questions were asked in Parliament, all of a sudden we were contacted by Minister Angus Taylor, which was such a coincidence. We'd been ignored for months. Um, but we didn't get a meeting till December the 3rd. We again prosecuted the case for a whole lot of things, but aircraft... And it wasn't until the 12th of December that that 11 million was tipped in, but it was basically too late to get the best aircraft they'd wanted months before. And then on 4th of January, after the South Coast and Gippsland had been decimated, the Prime Minister announced $20 million extra for aircraft, noting that he'd only been asked for 10, and a lot of suggestions in the industry that that suggestion was a phone call to the Fire Authorities Council the night before the press conference, not the other way around. So it was just, you know, I'm giving them double what they want, but those aircraft never reached Australia or never dropped on a fire because it rained in February. So mm -hmm. this is, again, there's no strategy. It just seems like tactics by media grab. And that, that's worrying. And it's happened with climate action. Say, so, you know, technology, not taxes. Carbon capture and storage, which is just fantasy land. No one's been able to make it work, yet the fossil fuel industries are getting billions in subsidies to come up with this fantastic solution that, you know, just doesn't work. Um, so it's our money. So if they'd put those billions of dollars into renewables, we'd have a lot less carbon dioxide going into the atmosphere. So it's just breathtaking the the vacuum policy vacuum that we've got in Australia yeah and even more staggering I think 
is that we had, this is colloquially termed the Bushfire Royal Commission, after these massive catastrophic fires in 2019-2020, and they provided really clear recommendations. And I know your group provided detailed submissions, um, which I read and spoke with Craig Lapsley about last November. And you point out in this book that you actually wrote to Minister David Littleproud, who's the Minister for Emergency Management, um, asking ahead of a planned meeting between yourself and him that didn't actually eventuate about what the government's response was to the Royal Commission report. And uh, although the, the Prime Minister had told the media that they broadly accepted the 80 recommendations made by the Royal Commission report, in fact, you point out that the government wrote a response saying that it supported just 32 recommendations. It then supported in principle 25 and had noted 23. So it is concerning that we're told one thing through the media about something quite significant, which is the outcomes and the findings and recommendations from a very thorough process. And then I wonder where we even got to in terms of what the government has actually accepted and acted upon and what your your analysis or assessment of their actions since have been. Look, I think they've moved on, Amy. Mission accomplished. Um, call a Royal Commission, then say, I can't talk about that. It's going to be looked at by the Royal Commission. Royal Commission hands down its findings and like all the former ones, um, then shelved because good luck finding out what they've done. Um, when my group said we were going to track 10 of the key recommendations on our website and when they implemented them, there was an announcement from the government, well, we're going to put out a, a tracker of all 80 recommendations. We thought, great, that's good. Um, hasn't been updated in months and no one it's not on the Prime Minister and Cabinet website anymore, so we don't know where it is. It's moving to another agency. So, you know, the transparency was there for a short time. There was very little action. There were some key things, good things, the national bushfire recovery arrangements. Um, they're looking at how to use the military in support roles far more efficiently than they have in the past. Another thing we warned them about, that it's... Uh, I think they've just moved on to other things. And this is this, again, lack of strategy. And anyone in the military emergency services field knows that strategy is crucial. You have to have an objective and an overarching plan and know where you want to be so that your tactics and actions feed into that. But I you know, I just look at how this government runs things and it um, does just seem to lurch from crisis to crisis and make... Um, news grabs, good news grabs, and then move on. Yeah. So that's my feeling with the Royal Commission. And the Royal Commission report pleaded with the government not to do what it had done with previous inquiries and just sit on the recommendations, but it, it has. That's what's happened. Uh, there's no, no nothing like the Banking Royal Commission. There's no agency really tracking it. There's no secretariat that's checking on implementation. Um, so it's just sort of seems to have gone into the wilderness and never to be found again. Yeah, it certainly is a theme having read about the numerous commissions and inquiries that we've had across decades into bushfires at a state and federal level. You do also point out that if the current inaction continues, fire seasons like the one we had in 2019-2020 are likely to be common by 2040 and the new normal by 2060, and the worst seasons will be worse than anything we can currently imagine. So given that we perhaps we'll struggle to imagine something worse than what we've already seen and we have been at catastrophic levels. What does one say or do when you're feeling, I guess, powerless about things? Because I guess one thing I felt at the time when these bushfires were happening was that this is our moment, you know, this is the point where things will change because it's so undeniable that climate change is causing these events. You and your colleagues have come out and I definitely think have shifted the conversation towards that instead of it being more of a matter of opinion or debate, which it clearly is not. It's a fact-based situation. So it felt like we had made some public movement. We'd seen major demonstrations about climate change following these bushfires just endless media coverage about it globally. You know, it did seem to be this kind of tipping point and then the pandemic started and obviously the public generally doesn't have a very long memory. 
I wonder what do we do to put it back on the agenda apart from these sporadic moments when it pops up like the the summit that's going to be happening in Glasgow about climate. How do we keep this going without just being constantly reactive to the bushfire seasons as they occur? Yeah, the, the multi-billion dollar question. And so after the fires, of course, we went into COVID or we went into floods and then we went into COVID. So, of course, the focus has been on saving lives and, you know, my heart goes out to families who've lost loved ones. It's been a terrible journey, but we seem to be coming out the other end. That took the focus off the shock and horror of these fires and we're, we're in a La Nina um, or heading into another La Nina phase, it looks like, so it'll be wet, so it'll be different sort of hazard, probably cyclones and floods and storms this, this summer, but there'll be fires, but nothing like Black Summer. It's inevitable that an El Nino event will return and that will supercharge the next round of fires. Now, that what you talked about, 2040 and 2060, that's a scientific study of current emissions trajectory. And it's saying that 2019, which was the hottest, driest year ever recorded in Australia, will be averaged by 2040, um, which means black summer will be an average bushfire season and there'll be something even worse happen occasionally. And by 2060, it will be exceptionally cool. So, And they're talking about heat waves heading towards 60 degrees. So who knows what bushfires look like there? But we had a glimpse of that in on um, New Year's Eve 2019, early January 2020. Pyroconvective storms, so fire-generated storms, used to be extremely rare. There were 60 between 1978 and 2018 Australia-wide. We had, I think the latest tally is 35 in one fire season in that just, you know, there were about 15 in Gippsland alone. Now, this is, when I say supercharged, these are extremely hot fires that push the convection column 10, 15 kilometres up into the stratosphere, link with the upper atmosphere and bring very strong winds and very dry, dry air down to the ground and you just get explosive fire behaviour, uh, winds from every direction. Things like happened in Canberra in 2003, 200 kilometre per hour winds, 20 kilometre per hour fire fronts through forest, trees snapping off like toothpicks. They're getting more of that in Europe, in California, Canada, Australia. Fires will get worse. Um, we've got to remember all this. And say no. And in my case, you know, I say in the book, I've got two beautiful grandsons, and I want them to have a livable future. Um, so I want Australia to be a prosperous country. I want our government to move us away from polluting industries and trying to sell stuff like coal that the world's not going to be buying for much longer. To you know, I want those families who rely on coal mining and export for their their livelihoods to have other good jobs they can go to and transition to. I want a safer future from natural disasters. So the Royal Commission said very clearly, trajectory to 2050 is set because of emissions already in the system. It will get warmer and things will get worse. After that, depends entirely on what we do now, now about emissions. If we do nothing, it'll continue to worsen and the ramifications you know, we probably can't imagine. If we take drastic action now to reduce emissions, we have a chance of stabilising the temperature by mid-century and then gradually bringing it down. So that's what we must aim at. And look, you know, unfortunately, and I've been criticised for this because I've realised it's now a political question. You have a coalition government that can't agree amongst themselves and you know, we might get a, oh, how good are we? We've gone net zero by 2050. Yeah, because the states and territories have done all the heavy lifting. The business council agrees. The farmers agree. Everyone agree we should do that. So they'll, they won't actually do anything to get there. They'll just rely on everyone else. But then still do nothing. And we need national policy settings for businesses to invest, to transition. So, you know, I think there's a big movement to target certain seats and get independence in who aren't handcuffed by major parties. Mm. They can actually say what they think. And, you know, maybe that's something people need to look at. Yeah, and support. 
I absolutely think that's true too. We need to support those who are speaking the truth about things, especially something so urgent as climate change and obviously these ever-increasing and more severe bushfires and other natural disasters. Greg, just finally, I really wanted to ask you about something which keeps coming up and I no doubt will come up at every bushfire season moving forward, which is this whole idea about hazard reduction burns and the discussion in the previous really severe fire season of 2019-2020 of the Black Summer where people were saying, and wrongly so, that these fires were driven by arson and that they were driven by supposedly left-wing greenies who had somehow managed to prevent hazard reduction burns from occurring to the extent that they should have. You pointed out that those fires were weather-driven and not fuel-driven necessarily. So I wanted to, I guess, just ask about and debunk this kind of misinformation that we do here that can tend to dominate the narrative and get people into some kind of cyclical debate that kind of detracts from the real point here, which is climate change. Yeah, look, Amy, and and it's it's so predictable every fire season. They trot out these myths. So it's the rotten greenies, so having a loud you know, hazard reduction, burning. National parks, um, they lock up these areas and, you know, if they let us go and grab firewood or graze our cattle in there, that would reduce the fuel loads and they don't do enough burning. So the facts are, um, A, good luck finding a jurisdiction in Australia where the Greens actually write legislation apart from the ACT, they're in coalition there, All regulation and legislation on hazard reduction in Australia was written by Liberal National or Labor governments and balance environmental protection, ecosystems and human scientific assets, um, cultural assets. So they're balanced. The multiple inquiries, New South Wales bushfire inquiry found that fuel levels were on average no different to what they've been for the last 30 years. But they also found that Climate change with longer fire seasons, the windows for carrying out hazard reduction are reducing. So in times where in the past we would have been burning, we're now fighting bushfires. They're getting harder to control. A warming atmosphere holds more moisture. So for each one degree rise in temperature, it holds 7% more moisture. That means downpours are far more intense. We're getting more intense storms, more intense downpours. So... When it rains, you can't burn. So it's either too wet or too dry and windy. So, But look, hazard reduction is a key thing. We need to be smarter about it. The latest research says focus around communities and assets and modify the fuels close in because fires that spot 8 to 12 kilometres or generate storms that start new fires 30 kilometres away with lightning, dry lightning, hazard reduction is actually not going to do a lot. But We must focus on it. But look, it's just not true that anyone's stopping it happening. The very governments, like in New South Wales, who, yeah, the nationals, again, had a go at National Parks and Wildlife Service, said, well, you know, they're not doing enough burning. Well, they're the ones who reduced the staff of national parks while increasing the park estate. So, you know, less ranges, more land. Um, Hello, you can't do as much. But Again, on average, they're doing more burning than they used to. It was definitely a weather-driven event. Arson, uh, that was just a lie. (laughs) So Victorian police, uh, New South Wales police figures, South Australian police figures, there was less arson than normal. There are only about 11 fires out of thousands in New South Wales that were found to be arson and only one damaged any property. The vast majority were caused by lightning. So there's just, you know, grazing in national parks. Oh, you know, please. Um, the cows and livestock eat green shoots, not dry eucalypt leaves and twigs and dead grass that fuel bushfires and shrubs. So it's been done to death. An Alpine task force in 2005 in Victoria said, no, all they do is damage the ecosystems, um, eat things that kangaroos and other natives should be eating. And it's just people wanting to get back land that they never owned and were once able to make money out of. It's got nothing to do with bushfire risk. Yeah. Greg, I'm so glad you've taken us through those points because I know that some people may not have heard the rationale and the evidence to refute all of those claims, which are clearly not founded on any true evidence. 
it's been really wonderful to speak with you. And I just thought I'd read out one quote that I hyperbolded on my notes here because I think it sums up things. And I hope people remember this when they're voting at the next election for any party or independent, which is hindsight is an inexact science, but no amount of reflection and deflection changes the fact that the government was warned and history will record that it chose not to act until far too late. And I know that it is easy to forget things. I know for those who've been affected by the bushfires, they wouldn't have forgotten, but it's kind of easier for those who haven't been directly affected to not think about this every day. But it is something we should absolutely have front of mind is certainly when we're making political decisions and choices. So thank you so much, Greg. I hope people do read this book because it is a compelling read. It's highly readable and I've wanted to read it all in one sitting and it's also essential reading because it affects all of our lives and I thank you for standing up and being courageous and putting your voice out there alongside your other colleagues for our benefit and on our behalf and also in a way protecting and safeguarding democracy by pushing what is the truth and what are facts back out there. Thanks very much Amy it's been great speaking to you. You too. I've just been speaking with Greg Mullins, who is an Australian volunteer firefighter. He is and was former Commissioner of Fire and Rescue New South Wales. He's a climate counsellor and he's also a founding member of the Emergency Leaders for Climate Action. He also has a number of other roles and previous roles, which I highly recommend you do check out. He speaks from a great depth of experience and this book is really wonderful to read and I think it's essential. And it's called Firestorm, Battling Supercharged Natural Disasters and it's published through Penguin Books. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.